Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we hike a 28-mile stretch of wild space on the edge of a metropolis. We'll climb two significant peaks with amazing glimpses of not only the metropolis, but also beautiful San Francisco Bay. Yes, we are going back to California for a surprisingly wild, steep, and rugged trip through the golden rolling hills of Oak Savannah and riparian valleys that were once inhabited by the native people the trail's name honors. And then after that, Spanish missionaries, and then ranchers, and finally, California adventure seekers like yours truly. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Ohlone Trail in the Coast Range of California. Welcome to the show, everyone. Don't forget to reach out to me with suggestions for possible trails to cover on the show at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So let's get into the show. In 2005, I moved back to the Bay Area after many years of living in Los Angeles. At the time, I met a friend through work who I found had done some backpacking and trekking. And of course, I talked his ear off about hiking. And after a while, he started telling me about another friend he had that also loved backpacking too. And eventually he decided to get the three of us together to do a hike. We settled on doing a two-day, one-night hike on the Ohlone Trail in the East Bay, close to where I live, east of San Francisco. And this was a trip that was close to home and that we could do in a weekend. We ended up hiking the most typical route, which is from this area called Sunol to Delval Reservoir in Livermore, or behind Livermore. So we hiked a good portion of the trail, but not the entire trail. We hiked it in October 2006, and the hills were golden and dry. I guess some might call them brown in California when they're dry, but let's call them the golden hills of California. I remember seeing a tarantula on the trail. The male tarantulas are often out in the fall looking for their mates. I also remember seeing a bobcat on the trail, which was kind of cool. And my friend Bill from work and I are still friends, but we've never backpacked or trekked together since then. Bill being a backpacker and a trekker, but not an avid one like I am, wisely stepped out of the way and let the third person of that trio, Tony Wong, and I start planning our own trips together. And Tony and I, both being uh, severely afflicted with the backpacking and trekking bug, have been doing hikes together ever since. Since that first trip on the Ohlone Trail, Tony and I have hiked together thousands of miles, including the Tahoe Rim Trail and the John Muir Trail and the Montesleu Circuit in Nepal and dozens of other trips. In any event, since 2006, it had always gnawed at me a little bit that we didn't hike the entire Ohlone Trail. We hiked the most popular section of it, but there is an earlier section that starts in Fremont at the trailhead to Mission Peak, and adds several miles to the trip to make it a total of 28. I think it adds maybe seven or eight miles to the trip. And I meant to eventually go back and do the entire hike. 
So in March 2022, I finally decided to hike the entire trail. But before we talk about the hike itself, let's back up and talk about who the Ohlone people were. The Ohlone people were the native peoples who occupied the San Francisco Bay Area from Monterey Bay and inland to Salinas, all the way up to the top of the San Francisco Bay. So a pretty good stretch of what is now considered the sort of metropolitan Northern California. These native peoples were called the Costanoans by the Spanish, which is just a word in Spanish that means coast dwellers. The language the Ohlone spoke is from the same language family as the language the Miwok people spoke. The Miwoks are also a nearby group of peoples. And the Ohlone's, or the Costanoans as they were known, had more than 50 distinct landholding groups. And they did not view themselves as part of the same group. So this was not a unified group of peoples, um, but 50 different related groups that lived side by side. They survived through hunting, fishing, and gathering. They would process through crushing um, acorns, which were a big part of their diet from the oak trees in the area. Also other nuts and berries, in addition to their hunting and fishing. They lived in domed-shaped houses made of tule mats. Tule is a kind of reed that grows here in the, the delta of the San Francisco Bay. And they actually used the tule reeds to make boats as well. Because of the type of foliage we have here in the Bay Area, the tule reeds were the best option, and they would tie them together in bunches to use them sort of like planks to make their boats. Their religion was called the Kuksu religion, which involved ceremonial dances. And the men actually had a secret sort of dance society that met in underground halls. When they were not dancing in the underground halls, they would actually wear disguises when they were out in the open dancing in front of others. Today, the Muwekma Ohlone tribe still exists. If you go to Muwekma, M-U-W-E-K-M-A dot org, they have their own website. And unfortunately, they've been engaged in long legal battles to try to seek federal recognition as a tribe, and to date um, have not been successful in that. But they're still at it, and uh, for a time had obtained some recognition, but that was later revoked. So I'm not sure about the details of the legal battle, but the fact is there still are people from the Muwekma Ohlone tribe that exist today, and you might want to check out their website and learn something about them. So the European presence in this area, though, as you might imagine, had a huge impact eventually on the Ohlone people. And that really comes down to talking about the Spanish mission system. So let me back up and say, as a kid growing up here in the Bay Area, the missions were something we really loved. They were, for us, I guess, a symbol of maybe the oldest European-style developments uh, in California, it made us feel like we had some history. We would go to the missions for field trips in school. And in fourth grade, I think it was at the time, we would study the missions as part of studying California history. And we would make a little diorama of a mission. So you would sort of pick one of the various missions and make a diorama of that mission. And so we we would celebrate it at the time, not understanding the full range of issues it presented, particularly um, how it impacted the native peoples, which we'll talk about. The Franciscan priest, Father Junipero Serra, who founded the mission system, to me at the time as a kid, was really uh, incarnated in a statue on Highway 280 
in the Bay Area between San Francisco and San Jose, kind of close to Stanford University, maybe a little north of there. I don't even know if the statue's still there, but there was a statue of Father Junipero Serra pointing forward, sort of pointing the way of the path of the missions. And I didn't really know who he was or what that statue represented. And, and today, obviously, it's it's much more controversial to have a statue of somebody who instituted a system that impacted the natives um, so negatively. All I remember about this statue was that when the 49ers were doing well, there was always this paper mache 49er helmet on him. And if the Giants were doing well, there was a similar giant paper mache Giants hat. And so for me, Father Junipero Serra at the time represented really just some sort of symbol of the the Bay Area sports teams, really, <laughs> and didn't have significant meaning to me beyond that, although I knew he had something to do with the missions. Other uh, notable people from the mission period had their names and still have their names attached with streets and towns and and other things around the San Francisco Bay Area. For example, my hometown that I grew up in of Pacifica, California, has a Crespi Drive, and Crespi was one of the Franciscan priests. And in high school, when we finally got driver's licenses and bought you know fancy cars that we could try to impress girls with, we went cruising on El Camino Boulevard, which is part of the El Camino Real, the, the King's Way that marked the path between the missions. But we didn't know that. We just knew that was the name of the street. I should say that my own children, a generation after me, still did the mission project in fourth grade. And they enjoyed it as well and, and learned something from it. But times have changed even since then. And today, California history is often studied in a very different way, often focusing on the gold rush, which had its own, of course, negative impacts, particularly environmentally. But the focus has come away from the missions today because of the controversy around their impact on the Native peoples. I visited several missions as a kid, and I visited missions with my own children, um, particularly when they were during the years where they were studying the missions. And they are, for California, very old. They are some of the oldest structures in California that still stand. And, you know, I always knew that they had something to do with the Spanish presence in California, California has lots of strip malls and homes that copied the mission style. But I wasn't raised in a religious family, so I didn't really understand the mission part of the missions. And I didn't really know what the mission system was about to really understand its impact. So let's talk about that a little bit. The missions were religious outposts established to convert the native population to Catholicism, essentially. They were founded by the Franciscan Order of Priests. Junipero Serra came from Spain to Mexico. He first established missions in Baja, California, on the Mexican side of California. And those missions are still there today as well. And I've actually visited, I want to say for sure one, I don't know if it may have been two, when I was in Baja, California at one point. But on the what is today the United States side of the border, the first mission was established in 1769 in San Diego. And Father Sarah traveled 700 miles on foot from San Diego to Sonoma and established nine missions along that route. Eventually, there were 21 missions in what was called Alta California, which is the American side of California versus the Mexican side, that were built between 1769 and 1833. Sarah, by the way, died in 1784, so he didn't live to see them completed, 
but he he mapped the route and established the first nine. When completed, the missions were about 30 miles apart from each other. And that was done uh, on purpose and was designed to be one day's ride by horse from each other so that you could take a full day and go from mission to mission up the coast of California, essentially. The route was coastal. The missions aren't on the coast necessarily, but they're all within a fairly short distance of the coast within a reasonable day's travel of the coast. One of the sort of legendary, interesting facts about the missions that I'm not sure how much confidence we have in its accuracy, but let's go with it, is that the missionaries planted mustard seeds that they brought from Europe, from Spain, along the route to sort of mark the El Camino Real, the the trail between the missions. And today, California is full of this yellow flowered mustard plant, which is an invasive species from Europe, but does have a certain charm to it and is pretty when it blooms. And the story goes that it originally was planted as a way to mark the route between the missions. As I've mentioned, the route was later called the El Camino Real, the King's Highway. And that route today roughly follows Highway 101 in California. The missions were originally designed to be self-supporting. So in addition to the church, there were workshops and living quarters And the land around the missions that were owned by the missions eventually were used for farming and grazing animals. But as I said, that was not the purpose. That was to help sustain them. The purpose was to convert the natives. So how did they do that? They created what were called reductions. And this means they took native groups that were dispersed in an area and they moved them into smaller spaces of land, essentially to be able to control them and to help them convert to Catholicism. This was not new in California with the mission system. This kind of thing, this coalescing groups into reductions, had been going on for probably about 250 years by this point by the Spanish, by the time they brought it to California. And whether it was said overtly or not, the point of this was to destroy the traditional way of life and essentially bring the native peoples into a more European way of living and a Catholic way of living. As we know now, the European diseases that they brought were devastating to the native peoples and greatly reduced their populations. Those that weren't affected by a disease were made to work the land. Uh, Once they were converted to Catholicism, they were called neophytes, and they were essentially considered captives of the mission. And so what that meant is if they actually tried to leave the area they would be essentially hunted down and brought back by guards. So it was sort of a a serfdom that was established in a way. During the mission period, the Spanish baptized more than 50,000 natives, but they buried more than 37,000. So that is not a very high survival rate. There is, as I mentioned, a lot of controversy around the mission system, as there should be. Like all missionaries then and probably now, They thought they were bringing true religion and culture to people who needed it. But that, of course, meant destroying the culture that existed then. California's mission system is one small example of how these kinds of projects have fared throughout history. My goal here is not to judge it from where we sit today, but merely to tell you about it, because it greatly impacted the peoples who are in the area where this hike exists, 
And also the Mission San Jose, which is in Fremont, California, is very close to the beginning of the trail. And the Mission Peak above that mission is the first part of the trail. The mission system didn't last very long. Even by 1810, Spain stopped financially supporting the endeavor, not because it didn't believe in it, but because Spain had its own financial problems at the time. And in 1821, of course, Mexico became independent from Spain. And so all official ties with Spain were broken at that point. The biggest change, though, came in 1833 with the Mexican Secularization Act that basically ended the mission system and divided the land into land grants. And this started a period of California's history, which is called the Rancho period, where former military commanders essentially got the land that had once belonged to the natives and began ranching it. They were given the land as an incentive to stay in California out on the frontier. So you've got the situation now where Mexico's newly independent. This uh, official attempt to convert the natives is no longer part of the government's policy, but it has all this land that the missions had occupied, and they turned it over to retired military folks to try to keep it civilized, essentially. Unfortunately, Native Americans didn't do much better working on the ranches than they had at the missions. They suffered high death rates, disease continued, and they were essentially continuing to act as serfs working the land for someone else. But this period didn't last long either. In 1846, there was a war between the United States and Mexico, the Mexican-American War. And in 1847, California became a U.S. territory. There was a treaty that kept the ranchos intact, but a, a huge legal mess followed, and many of the ranchos eventually went belly up. And then, of course, the famous California gold rush of 1848 and 1849 came immediately after that. And in 1850, California became a United States state. One interesting thing is that many of California's modern urban boundaries are still based on the Rancho land-grant boundaries, and thus, indirectly, still based on how the mission system had developed. Today, the missions are still used in many respects. They're still working churches. They are also historical sites that you can visit with museums, and the grounds are available to see. Those that fell into disrepair have been preserved or partially reconstructed. Let's talk for a moment about Mission San Jose, which is the mission very close to the start of this trail. Mission San Jose was built in 1797. It is in what is today Fremont, California, not San Jose. Actually, Mission Santa Clara is the closest one to San Jose, the city of San Jose. This is on the east side of the San Francisco Bay, and it's about 13 miles north of Mission Santa Clara. So actually fairly close as far as the missions go, being typically spaced a little further apart than that. The natives who were part of the Mission Santa Clara system built Mission San Jose. Eventually, it became one of the most prosperous missions. By 1832, it had cattle on lands all the way from Oakland to San Jose. There were thousands of horses, sheep, and cattle. There were originally over 100 adobe buildings. But like the other missions, it was sold off by the Mexican government and it fell into disrepair like many of them. And then in 1868, an earthquake destroyed the church. Turns out the Hayward Fault, an earthquake fault in the San Francisco Bay Area, runs right through the mission. 
1985, though, the church was rebuilt in a near-perfect replica of the original church. And today it is a, a church that is has its own congregation and is used and also has a primary school. So I think, as I mentioned, this area is rolling hills, though pretty steep hills. It's mostly fire roads and trails that are connected to make the Ohlone Trail and the other trails in the area. One thing I should note is that it can be pretty steep, and I think people really underestimate how steep the hills in the East Bay and the South Bay can be. I actually find these hikes, like the Ohlone Trail, like the Diablo Trail, which we covered in another episode, and uh, some of the hikes in Henry Coe State Park, east of Morgan Hill and Gilroy, below the South Bay, to be really great hikes to do in the spring to get yourself into shape for the mountain hikes of the Sierra in the summer. This area is oak savanna, meaning it's mostly grasslands with oak trees interspersed. And it has a kind of open beauty that I think is can be very refreshing and really enjoyable to hike through. Before we get into the logistics for the hike itself, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor for the show, Outdoor Herbivore. Outdoor Herbivore makes tasty, high-quality backpacking meals. The meals are vegetarian and vegan, but as you know, and as I always say, you do not have to be a vegetarian or a vegan to love these meals. They're delicious for everyone. They have lots of calories so that a hungry hiker can feel satisfied. And they come in boil-in-a-bag packaging, so all you need to do is pour hot water in and seal them up for 10 minutes, stir, and your dinner is ready. Outdoor Herbivore has worldwide shipping, so even if you're not from the United States or live in the United States, you can still get Outdoor Herbivore backpacking meals. I should also mention that they sell their ingredients in bulk, so that if you want to design your own meals and just buy the ingredients like dried beans or pre-cooked rice or whatever other ingredients you might need or want that are found in other Outdoor Herbivore meals, you can buy them in bulk from Outdoor Herbivore and put together your own backpacking meals. I used to do that quite a bit. I used to use freezer bags, so a quart-sized freezer bag as my boil-in-a-bag package. A freezer bag will hold boiling water, and you can treat it just like boil-in-a-bag packaging for a commercial backpacking meal. So you can put your bulk ingredients in the freezer bag, pour in boiling water when you're ready to eat it, stir it up and seal it for 10 minutes, and uh, your meal is ready. So that's an option with Outdoor Herbivore as well through their bulk items. Trails Worth Hiking listeners get a 10% discount on Outdoor Herbivore. Use the discount code TWH10P, so Trails Worth Hiking 10%, to get your discount on Outdoor Herbivore backpacking meals at OutdoorHerbivore.com. They are supporting this show to help keep the lights on here. So if you feel so inclined, give them a try, support them, and send me an email afterward and tell me what you think of their meals. So check them out, Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. All right, so let's go into the logistics for this hike. So what is a good reason to do this hike? Well, if you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, it's right in your backyard, so that's a great reason to do it if you are from here. Or if you even plan to visit the San Francisco Bay Area, you can tack on a weekend or a few extra days and do a hike. You know, when I travel pretty much anywhere in the world, I try to find a backpacking trip that I can do or a trek that I can do as part of my trip. And should be no different when you travel within the United States, if you're from the United States. 
So this is a great option to see the Bay Area in a very different way than the traditional tourist sites, or if you're just going to visit family, why not add a backpacking trip? As I mentioned a few minutes ago, though, it's also a great tune-up for the summer mountain hiking season. The East Bay Hills are, are very challenging hiking. And it's always good to have shoulder season hikes available and not just confine your hiking to the summer mountain season. Following from that, the best time of year to do this hike is really the spring or the fall. In the spring, there's more water available, as you might expect, than in the fall. The summers here in the East Bay can be scorching hot. So you do not want to hike this hike in the middle of the summer. It will be miserable hot, so don't do it. The spring or fall is the best time. When I hiked it in 2006 from Sonol to DelVal, that was in the fall. I think it was in October. And this trip that I'm going to be talking about today was in March. There's no real special gear you need. I think you want to carry decent water capacity because there can be significant stretches without drinking water available. So having at least capacity for a couple of liters is important. The hike starts in Mission Peak Preserve, which is an easy place to get to off of Highway 680. So you take 680 to Mission Boulevard exit. There are two Mission Boulevard exits, so make sure you're going to the correct one. Coming from north to south, it's the first Mission Boulevard exit. That's in Fremont, California. If you're starting the trip in Sonol, doing the shorter version, maybe if you only have less time, if you only have a couple of days, that's also off of 680. There's a Sonol exit. And if you're starting at the other end at DelVal Park, that's off of Highway 580. You get off in Livermore and you drive about 10 miles past the city of Livermore. Let's talk about permitting for this. I'm actually excited to talk about the permitting here. And that may sound like a strange thing to say, but the permitting situation here really makes the hike convenient. And that is because the permit itself is also the map for the hike. So when you go online and you order your permit or you call the East Bay Regional Park Service and get the permit, they send you the permit and it's good for one year. So once you get the permit, you could do the hike anytime up to a year. And the permit itself is the map of the hike. And it's a fantastic map. It's called the Ohlone Wilderness Trail Permit. It has the entire route mapped out, highlighted. Every single junction on the trail is numbered on the map. And when you are hiking the trail, there are posts, physical actual posts with those same numbers on them and with a red oak leaf, which is the symbol for the trail, so that you can really follow along on the map. And it is marked from west to east, so it's marked from the numbers starting at number one on the Mission Peak side and going all the way up. I think it's in the 30s or something when you get to the other end in DelVal. Okay, that said, you have this fantastic map, you've got your permit, and I think the permit costs, I don't know, $8 or something like that. The more difficult thing is to reserve the campsites along the way. This is not an open camping situation, so you do have to reserve one of the camp areas that's along the way, and there are several. And I believe you can reserve up to about a month in advance. I think it said four weeks in advance. Although I seem to remember calling even before that and being able to get a spot. So I'm not sure exactly how it works. So you might want to look that up on the website. But I do mention it because these sites can fill up. Depends on when you're going. If you're going in a very desirable time like April or October, the sites can fill up. So definitely call several weeks ahead and reserve your campsites. 
So you need both the permit and the campsites reserved. And we'll talk a little bit more about the campsites when we talk about the trail. The trail is about 28 miles long. There are a couple of side trips that can make it a little longer, so probably in the neighborhood of 30 miles, which is about 50 kilometers. I recommend doing this trip over two nights and three days. The way I did it is I actually started the afternoon of the first day. So I uh, worked from home during the morning, got in my car, drove to the trailhead, started in the afternoon on a Friday, and finished up by lunchtime on Sunday. Two long days is definitely possible. If you're doing the Sonol to DelVal version, the shorter version certainly can do it in two days. But even if you're doing it all the way from Mission Peak to DelVal, you could do it in two days if that's all of the time you have and you're an aggressive hiker with a pretty light setup. Which way to go? Well, as I said, both times I went west to east, probably because that's the way the map is set up. But one of the reasons that west to east might make the most sense is that the east end is really steep downhill. So if you were to start on the east end, your first couple miles are basically straight uphill. That said, when you start all the way at the very beginning at Mission Peak, it's pretty much the same thing. The first couple miles are straight uphill. So Sonol is really the easiest place to start, but if you're doing the entire trail, you don't have that choice. So at either end, you're going to be starting uphill if you're doing the full trail. But I would probably do it west to east if you're just looking for convenience and using the map. So how do you set this up as far as getting picked up and dropped off or shuttling? You could have someone pick you up or drop a car at the back end. That's what I did. My wife, Andy, picked me up Sunday at one o'clock at the DelVal end. If you're going the other direction, finishing at Mission Peak, that is actually a more urban area and you could probably get an Uber from that end if you needed to go back to your car the other direction. If you finish at Sonol or DelVal, be aware that there's probably not going to be cell reception. And so you need to arrange a ride in advance if you're finishing at that end, or at least have dropped off a car. All right, let's talk about the hike. So as I mentioned, you start by going down Mission Boulevard, you turn left on this road called Stanford Avenue, and you drive to the end of Stanford Avenue up the hill, and you get to what is called the Stanford Avenue staging area. And this is at about 390 feet in elevation. The thing to know about this area is that it is a very popular trailhead for day hiking. As a result, there is almost never good parking and it's a wait until somebody gets in their car to leave. It's kind of a zoo and it's not a great place to park. I fortunately on a Friday afternoon was able to find a spot that wasn't an actual marked parking spot that was along the side of the road right up against the parking lot. And it worked out just fine. And I got lucky in that respect. But it can be difficult to find parking there. So keep that in mind. Parking at off hours early in the morning or later in the afternoon might be better. Uh, or having someone drop you off. There's actually been a long fight to expand the parking at this area, but the homeowners in the area have opposed it. And someday there may be more parking. But right now it's a pretty tight fit for the number of people that use this area. So as I said, I arrived in the afternoon and I began my hike at the Mission Peak parking lot trailhead. All right, I'm starting my trip out at the Mission Peak Reserve, starting out the Ohlone Trail at around 1.30 on Friday afternoon, going solo. 
weather is cloudy. We haven't had rain for a couple of months, but then yesterday we got a little bit of thunder and rain. And today still a little bit drizzly with clouds. Mission Peak right now is completely in the clouds. And so I'm starting out day one of the Ohlone Trail. I'll be only hiking about four and a half miles today, but it's over 2,000 feet of gain uh, before I drop down to where the camp is. Uh, so quite a bit of uphill coming up and looking forward to a good three days of hiking. Mission Peak is 2,517 feet high. So somewhere in the neighborhood of between seven and 800 meters high. It's a little over three miles from the trailhead to get to the top of Mission Peak. It's a short detour from the main trail. I highly recommend taking that detour if you're on this trail. It doesn't add that much time and distance to your hike. And it's really an amazing view from the top of Mission Peak. You get a huge view over the South Bay, the bay itself, San Jose, all of that. Since 1990, on top of the peak, there has been this strange, bizarre, let's call it a sculpture. It's called the Mission Peaker. And sculptor and park ranger Leonard Page built the this little post that's there at the top of the mountain to raise environmental awareness. He sealed inside it a crystal and a lonely charmstone replica Apparently there's a bottle of 1990 Zinfandel wine in there and five different time capsules with articles and photos, including of such cultural icons like Bart Simpson. Apparently the, the post and the items inside were designed to be opened in a hundred years. So that's what that uh, tower is when you get to the top of Mission Peak that you'll see. When I got to the top of Mission Peak, the wind was blowing incredibly hard, so I didn't stay too long, but the view was incredible. And then after visiting Mission Peak, it's not very far at all to the Eagle Spring Backpack Camp. So that's in the neighborhood of four miles from the trailhead, but maybe it's a little more than that when you add in the detour to the summit. After summiting Mission Peak, I arrived at camp. I made it to Eagle Spring Backpack Camp at about 3.30. There's four sites here. I'm in site number four, and I'm the only one here. It's a pretty nice view of Mount Diablo off in the distance. It's really windy. My site has got a big tree covering it, some kind of bay tree, uh, but it's pretty windy I'm trying to figure out where to set up the tent. I went to the top of Mission Peak along the way and going up toward Mission Peak, there are a lot of day hikers. And I'm not sure they knew what to make of me carrying a backpack. But because I carry lightweight gear, it's not such a big backpack as to obviously be an overnight pack. Um, so people gave me some quizzical looks. But I made it to the summit up there, and it was really windy on top of Mission Peak, but a beautiful view. And then came down from the peak and headed toward the backpack camp. So it took me about two hours to hike up here from the parking lot. A little over four miles in, I think, maybe four and a half, maybe five if you include the detour to Mission Peak. You can probably hear the wind. 
could be a rough night here if the wind doesn't calm down. And I'm not sure if anyone else is going to show up, even though it is a Friday night. I could see my breath hiking over here, so I think it's going to be pretty darn cold tonight. After spending some time resting, I put up my tent in very high winds, which was quite a bit of effort, and tried to settle in to camp and to make dinner. It's late afternoon. I got the tent set up. The wind is really strong right now. I'm a little worried about the tent coming apart, but so far so good. And I'm inside the tent getting some warm clothes on and trying to figure out how I'm going to cook dinner with all this wind. Hoping the wind dies down once it gets dark. And after getting my gear set up and making dinner, I settled down for the evening. Well, I've settled into my tent, into my sleeping bag, trying to warm up my toes. The wind is still going strong, though I was able to at least get some water to be lukewarm so that I could make dinner. The tent is still uh, holding together, knock on wood. And I'm glad I brought my 15 degree sleeping bag rather than my 22 degree quilt. Uh, with the wind, it really helps to have the full sleeping bag. And also glad I brought my canister stove versus a, an alcohol or solid fuel stove uh, because at least it still works even with high winds. So a few gear items that seem to have helped so far. Nobody ever showed up to the other three sites at this backpack camp, so it's just me here for the night. I can see uh, the 680 freeway off into the distance down in the Sonol Valley. Tail light says it's getting dark. And I was able to send messages via text through my Garmin inReach uh, to my wife and kids. I bought a Garmin inReach um, because I've been doing more solo trips, Garmin inReach Mini, or actually a Garmin inReach Mini 2. 
um, because I've been doing more solo trips and had some issues with my back at various times and so I wanted to be able to have the ability to uh, call for help in, in case of an emergency and also to check in daily with my family. So I'm going to stay in the tent for a while and get, stay warm before I get up and brush my teeth and finish camp chores and uh, just watch it get dark and hope that the wind dies down. That evening turned out to be windy, rainy, and quite an adventure, more than I had bargained for. But I enjoyed it nonetheless, as I always do. The hike the next day leaves the Mission Peak Preserve and goes through some water department land for a while, and then reaches Sonol. To get to Sonol, there's a road crossing. It's about eight miles in to get to Sonol from the original trailhead at Mission Peak. And the road crossing is Calaveras Road, and that's at about seven and three quarters miles in, so maybe 12 or 13 kilometers in. And at that point, you cross into the Ohlone Regional Wilderness, and then pretty quickly you come through a parking lot for hikers at the Sonol Trailheads area. There's water available there. There's a creek. Oh, and by the way, I should back up and say at each of the backpack camps, uh, there is water available too. Eagle Spring has four different sites and one water pump and a pit toilet. When you come into Sonol, this is the only time you really come into civilization along the hike. And it's a sort of brief popping into civilization and then back into the, the backcountry. But I did take a break and sit down for a minute at Sonol and take in what I had accomplished so far. It's about 10.15 or 10.30 on Saturday morning. And last night it was windy and cold and rainy. And I've made it to the parking lot at Sonol after a couple hours of hiking this morning. And I'm about to head onto the part of the Ohlone Trail that I've done before, but way back in 2006. This is the only place where it crosses a parking lot or a road. Looking at the trail ahead, it looks like it snowed last night. There's a pretty good dusting of snow on the mountains. Although it's warming up right now a little bit. And um, still a little bit of clouds and not sure if the weather's going to clear today or not. Tonight's camp is about another 10 or 12 miles from here. And it's quite a bit higher up. So there's a chance there'll be snow up there, but maybe we'll have melted by then. In any event, I just had a snack, took a little break, and I'm about to head off. Several miles after Sonol, you get to the Sonol Backpack Camp. This is the only available water between the Sonol Trailhead and what's called Doe Camp, which is quite a bit later. So if you're short on water, the water source, the water pump, uh, which is from a well at Sonol Backpack Camp, is a good option to refill your water. I haven't camped at the Sonol Backpack Camp, but it's got a few interesting dispersed sites. 
The sites tend to have nice views. They're kind of overlooking a valley. It's an interesting area. There's some trees. There's an old pit toilet that I wouldn't want to use. It's a good option if you are hiking the entire trail and trying to do it in one night, two days. This might be a good place to spend the night. But I wasn't going to be camping at Snoll, and I kept going and started gaining ground and coming into more open space and hiking higher and higher toward Rose Peak and the campground below Rose Peak, which is called Maggie's Half Acre. I did mention Doe Camp. That's a primarily a horse camp that's pretty close to Maggie's Half Acre, but before there. And that's an option. You don't need to have a horse to be camping in that area. It seemed to be kind of an open field setup. Um, but Maggie's Half Acre is a great spot with three separate campsites. I really enjoyed that camp area. That's where I had camped in 2006 as well when we hiked from Sonol to Delval. We stopped at Maggie's on that trip as well. So on the way to Maggie's Half Acre, I was getting higher and higher in elevation and starting to come across patches of snow. This is in March, and we had had some weather the night before, as I mentioned. And it got more prevalent as I got higher up. So there was actually a fair amount of snow spread across the ground. And I got into Maggie's Half Acre, site number one, which is a good site, and set up camp. It's around five o'clock. And I made it to Maggie's Half Acre and set up camp. I'm in site one, which is a really nice site. Some huge oaks and plenty of room. Uh, it's pretty cold. Sun's going down. It's not windy like last night, so that's good. But there's snow on the ground here at uh, Maggie's Half Acre. Not snow everywhere. I was able to find a site without any snow. But there's snow pretty close to my tent. And I filled up water from the well. There's one other group of four people in one of the sites. And then the third site here, site two, is empty. And I'm going to make some dinner and probably go to bed early because it's going to get really cold. It's kind of a north-facing, northeast-facing camp area. So it's got a nice view of Mount Diablo and east into the Central Valley of some of the windmill farms out there. But not a lot of sunlight, and the sun is already dipped behind the hill. And it's starting to get chilly, but I've got all my warm clothes on and feeling pretty good, and I'm about to make dinner. Had a long, hard day. Never really warmed up that much today. It was pretty cool most of the day. I'm not sure how many miles I did, maybe 14 or so from the map, but it was a long, hard day hiking from 8 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. And uh, I'm looking forward to a long, cozy night in my sleeping bag. And after setting up camp, I settled in to cook dinner. Got the stove going. Heating up water. Seems to be working a lot better than it did yesterday with high winds. Really looking forward to 
a nice hot meal. Having the outdoor herbivore chickpea sesame zeti tonight. One of my favorites. I had an enjoyable night at Maggie's Half Acre and early the next morning um, had a beautiful view across the valley from my tent and enjoyed breakfast in bed. It's a little after six in the morning. There's a uh, little glow of sunrise in the distance, just starting to get light. There's frost covering the ground that wasn't already covered in snow and frost on my shoes and everything that was outside. I went out to take a pee and retrieve my food bag where I had it hanging from a tree limb. And now I'm cooking uh, breakfast in bed back into my sleeping bag with the stove set up just outside the tent and tent open and heating up the water for my oatmeal and my coffee. Going to get going early this morning because I've got about a four to five hour hike to get to the end of the trail where Andy's picking me up between 12 and 1 p.m. And I'm just kind of excited to get on the road, as they say. Everything was covered in a lot of condensation in the tent early last night because the air was really still and cold. But now it's breezy, which is perfect because it's taken away all the condensation and dried everything out. And it's a beautiful morning. From where I'm sitting, I'm up on kind of a ridge or kind of a plat plateau where I can see out across a valley to the next ridge, which I think I'll be hiking down later this morning and beyond that into the central valley of california and the delta all right i'm gonna get my breakfast ready in the morning after i packed up i went to the top of rose peak which is very close to the campsites of maggie's half acre really probably a quarter mile at most above the campsites along a couple of fire roads to get there. It's a pretty easy stroll. Rose Peak is a, another fantastic view of the area. It's only 32 feet lower in elevation than Mount Diablo, which we talked about on the Diablo Trail episode. So Rose Peak is at 3,817 feet. Mount Diablo is clearly visible from Rose Peak and actually for a while beforehand on the trail. By the way, definitely check out episode nine about the Diablo Trail if you're interested in these hikes in the Bay Area. That's another fantastic local Bay Area hike. That one I actually hiked all the way to my front door, which was kind of cool. So check out episode nine if you haven't heard that one yet. So Rose Peak itself was actually called Maggie's Half Acre uh, because Maggie Rowell, who I don't know her relationship to the owner of this area originally, but his name, his last name was Roll, so related somehow. I don't know if it was his wife or daughter. Maggie Roll leased the peak to the United States Geological Service to put its instruments on it. 
So they affectionately called it Maggie's Half Acre, and that's why the backpack camp just below the peak bears that name. After quite a bit of hiking, you start heading downhill, and you go through this really sort of riparian area called Williams Gulch, which is quite beautiful, but also quite steep down and then back up. And then eventually you get to the end of the trail after a very long downhill on fire roads that's quite a knee buster. Uh, you get down to Delval Regional Park, and you end up in what's called the Lichen Bark Picnic Area. So if you're going to have a ride pick you up, it's important to tell them that it's the Lichen Bark Picnic Area because there are several different spots in Delval, and you want to make sure they're at the right place. There's also a campground in Delval, so if you want to continue your trip and spend a night camping there, you could do that if you reserve a spot at that campground. Uh, or if your ride wants to camp with you for a night, you could have them come pick you up and go camping, car camping for a night. All right, so that does it for my hike of the Ohlone Trail. Often when I have a guest on the show, I will go through a few questions, as you know, to try to learn something more about the guests. And over time, I think I've given my take on some of those questions, but I thought I'd answer one of those questions myself today. One question I often ask is, what is one piece of gear you don't leave home without? or everyone should consider bringing when they go on a hiking trip. And I want to answer that question today with one of the pieces of gear that I always bring that has made a huge difference for me, and that is a very lightweight inflatable pillow. I have a very lightweight backpacking setup, but one of the things I've learned over the years is that a good night of sleep is worth its weight in gold. And as a result, I will carry a few minor luxury items to make sure I get a good night of sleep. And one of those items is an inflatable pillow. There are lots of brands, so I'm not going to endorse any particular brand here, but there are quite a few lightweight inflatable pillows that you can find on Amazon or at places like REI and try a couple out, find one that works for you. But especially because on backpacking pads and in using a mummy bag kind of sleeping bag, uh, it's often helpful to be able to sleep on your side and getting a nice inflatable pillow under your head can really make that easier to do. I also use it with a fleece stuff sack that the pillow goes in and the fleece has a couple of straps that go around my sleeping pad. And I think that's important too, because if the pillow keeps scooting away from you in the middle of the night, it's not terribly useful. So I have found this combination of a lightweight inflatable pillow plus a a fleece stuff sack that has straps to keep it on my sleeping pad uh, really, really helps me to have a great night's sleep. And I highly recommend putting together a system like that. All right. So I hope that I have inspired you to hike the Ohlone Trail. And if you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it, or better yet, leave us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Before we go, I want to tell you about our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel more than 90 miles on a loop hike through dense forests in the Pacific Northwest. This is no easy stroll in the woods, though. This is punishing up-and-down hiking around the skirt 
of a massive volcano that is visible all the way from Seattle. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Wonderland Trail and the Cascade Range in Mount Rainier National Park in Washington State. All right, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike, and before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.